Hey, welcome to Labor Goes to the Movies with me, Chris Garlock, director of the BC Labor Film Fest. And as always, my sister in cinematic solidarity, Elise Bryant, executive director of the Labor Heritage Foundation. Our guest this week is director Mark Street, whose latest film is the wonderful Work Songs. It features interviews with cab drivers, longshore women, a farmer, a barista from California to New York City. It's inspired by the work of the great Studs Terkel. Work Songs is a kaleidoscopic portrait of the United States at work as we face threats from automation, the gig economy, and the decline of unions. It's a pretty wide-ranging conversation. As usual, I think you're going to enjoy it. Here's the show. Are you poor, forlorn, and hungry? Are there lots of things you lack? Is your life made up of this? No matter what Uber does, we're going nowhere. We're here, we're here to stay. Now I produce video games, and um, I never fully clock out. My father was a longshoreman, and when I was 18, I got to carry on that legacy. So I'm fourth-generation longshoreman. The Wobblies have always said, I don't mind the machine, I just don't want to be its victim. I didn't have a high school degree, and nobody would hire me at that point. You're constantly reminded that you're the woman woodworker. Just want to clear a path for girls that might be interested, but don't feel like the world is saying it's for them. I have the privilege of participating in land redemption. It's really, really satisfying. I want everyone to get across safely, let everyone feel special. I take it with so much pride and so much love. Sipping up you ornery duffers and dump the bosses off your back. Welcome, welcome to Labor Goes to the Movies, Mark. Good to have you here. Great. This is audio only, right? No, no, no. You're on. You're on camera, baby. Oh gosh. We, we, we released two versions: the, uh, the the audio version and the individual. Did you want to go do your hair now? And <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's anything to do to my hair, but uh, I will. Uh, I will take off. Go my the t-shirt. Yeah. Oh. There you go. Put on my business t-shirt. How's that? <laughs> you're, a the Bronx. you're a cyclist or a runner? I want to be there. A cyclist. Cyclist. The tool of the Bronx, not to be. Oh. <laughs> So sorry, so sorry. All right. So this, as you can tell, is a is a pretty free flowing, uh, no holds bar. We just talk about whatever. the The question that we've wound up starting asking people is, Mark, what is your what is your earliest uh, memory of of a movie? That is such a good question. Um... That is such a good question. My earliest memory of a movie. I remember some biopic about um, Churchill, of all people, at, at a theater in downtown Beloit, Wisconsin, where I grew up. And um, it was very much on site, and, you know, Saturday afternoon at the movies. And it, 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 I don't know, it, it uh, you know, uh, stuck with me for some reason. Um, sort of a dry biopic or something, but I was intrigued anyway intrigued by the um um you know by the activity of sitting in a theater which i haven't been able to do in a long time but i'm an avid um movie attender and i look forward to doing it again when it's safe that actually uh we, we didn't get to this yesterday but let, let's let's get to it now uh which is talk i mean especially as a both as a as a film goer and all three of us obviously are, but also for you as a filmmaker, talk about the difference between, uh, you know, going, you know, seeing a film in a theater with other people and, you know, seeing it at home on your couch. Well, I just feel like, um, you know, it, um, I mean, the obvious things are it's more immersive, right? And it's more, um, uh, kind of um, detached from your daily life. We all surround ourselves with um, trappings, things that make us feel comfortable. My bicycle, my walls are painted the way I want them to be painted. 
um, I'm safe, I'm at home. If I'm viewing a film at home, it's within the theater that I've created within my bourgeois Brooklyn lifestyle, if you will, right? Um, if I go out to a theater, I'm in public and I'm receiving in a, in a much in a much more public space. And obviously we could talk about movie prices and you know how it's expensive to go to the movies, but I feel like you're you're meeting something halfway in a in a public domain. And there isn't the there isn't the social interdiction on leaving. If you watch something at home, I just watched a great Ken Loach film. Um oh, it's my, uh, my name is Joe. Love it. Um uh, but I watched half of it two nights ago and then half of it yesterday, right? Um, in a way, it sort of truncates and atomizes the experience. It's something you can't do in the theater. So uh, I think, you know, it's really wonderful to be here talking about the movies, but I really miss the festival circuit. I really miss being in the audience, shared experience with people looking at my films and others and answering questions in a, in a live context. Uh, I got more questions, but I'm gonna I'm gonna yield the floor to uh, to Elise. I have to ask, what was the word after truncated? Yeah, <laughs> truncate, atomized. Atomized, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, atomized. made made into smaller units or something. You know, we're all at home. There's a very sad commercial. Uh, I still watch uh, network news, uh, which shows my age. Um, but there's a very sad commercial for um, Verizon or one of these cellular companies, and there's a family. And the premise of the commercial is uh, we'll, we'll give you enough um, firepower so that everyone can watch what she wants on her own device. You see the father watching sports and you see the mother watching whatever she's watching and you see the kids playing video games. And it's supposed to be this argument for largesse of, of service. And I see a family that's split into a million directions, not you know, not sucking it up and watching the same thing or something, you know, but anyway, right. the old man comment number 526. <laughs> it's the atoms of the nuclear family. The atoms separated. of the yeah. family, how's that? So I wonder, you know, that, that your first film that you recall is a documentary had any impact on your decision to become a documentarian? It wasn't a, it wasn't a doc documentary, it was a oh. biopic. Um, oh, biopic, uh, sorry, sorry. Biopic. But I remember, you know, I remember reviewing- A, a biopic about Churchill in, in what, the 60s? Um, yeah, it would have been the, it would have been 1970 or so. so That's everything? Yeah, it was weird. It was, I don't, I don't, I, I should look that up. I, formative. I have, I can't recall. I'm like trying to place the film and- Yeah, I'm sure it went nowhere, you know. Mm. It would have gone straight to video had video existed. <laughs> Um, but, um, you know, it's interesting. I remember reviewing my, um, reviewing Apocalypse Now from my high school newspaper. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I liked it at the time and might have some issues with it now, but anyway, whatever. I was, I thought it was a, a I thought it was a good movie. Um, but I remember thinking that film, uh, you know, with the cast of thousands and millions of dollars and, you know, shot in Thailand and all that, that's so far from any kind of experience, um, from any kind of like sort of um, personal agency. I can't see even Francis Ford Coppola in that movie, right? I couldn't see, I couldn't see the artistry. All I could see was the, um, or the personal artistry, right? All wow. I could see was the sort of, um, you know, Hollywood um, uh, mechanism. Um, and then when I went off to Bard College, I started to look at movies that were more personal movies, that were more, uh, more about one, one person's vision, one person's thought. Uh, so that's really where um, I made the leap between, um, you know, what I could do as a filmmaker, which is very, um, I would say, uh, low to the ground, humble, <laughs> you know, it's just going out with a camera and shooting, basically. Um, and these sort of large Hollywood productions um, that you can do it on your own terms and you can do it in, um, you know, uh, sort of less, um, you know, less grand ways. And it's just as powerful to me. You mentioned yesterday you're a professor. Yeah, I teach at Fordham University here in New York and I teach in the art department not the communications department, but I teach filmmaking in the art department, the visual arts department, alongside photography, graphic design, architecture, et cetera. So again, filmmaker as artist, you know, um, 
you know, in a lot of my films, there's, there's, you know, obviously I thank people and I have a crew, but um, it's sort of a one person thing akin to a poem or a novel or a short story or something like that. Yeah, I, that was my feeling of, of, uh, of work songs. It felt very, very uh, personal and um, it had to me a bit of a road trip feel. I don't know uh, when, you know, you had said you you actually, I don't think it actually is sequential and you played around, you talked about that, you played around with the, with the sequencing of it. Um, and it, it does, but they are a series of, of vignettes, but it had this feeling of, you know, of you sort of going along and thinking, oh, this would be an interesting person to talk to. It didn't, it didn't feel like you started out with a, I mean, you had a plan in terms of the, you were inspired by Studs Terkel's book, Working, right? Yes, exactly, yes. But from, from there, it means so to call it a plan might be a little a little more than, than really was, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, these docu documentaries I make are cumulative. You know, you shoot something. Um, also, to me, the, the, this is sort of a, a, an artist thing too, right? You know, the line between pre-production and production and post-production is, is, is uh, permeable. Um, so rather than, let's just say, writing a grant proposal saying I'm going to go do this then you go shoot it and then you edit it you know I'll I'll uh shoot a little bit edit a little bit figure out what I need go back into the field shoot a little bit more and you know keep keep the process alive in that way but I appreciate what you're saying about the road trip because that's really where I what I the way I saw it a cinematic road trip you know um uh going to these places talking to people in formal and informal ways and um you know, seeing the country as a whole and sort of considering what, um, you know, how things might be different in the Northeast than in the South and things like that. So you were, you were inspired by, by Studs, you know, Turkle's working, you know, that he's a very particular interviewer. What was, what was your idea about how to do that in film? You know, what's interesting is, is I, um, I sort of learned along the way that, um, um, less prepared is better. Um, when I, I don't know what your experience, Chris, with all the media, you, Chris and Elise, all the media you do, but um, you know, you have a million and one questions, and it sort of over, over determines the answers in some ways. Uh, I think the first few interviews I did, I had a big legal pad, and I was bound up in these questions. Um, and then as I got, as I moved along, it's more about listening to people. Right. It's more about letting them talk. It's more about letting them go where they want to go and building the questions on each other. Um, uh -huh. But I want to say something else about place and you know, in response to your last question, Chris, and that is that um, a lot of my work, um, experimental narrative and otherwise, uh, starts with location, starts with place. Um, I made a film called um, uh, Rockaway. Um, it's an improvised feature shot out in the Rockaways here in New York and Queens, which is the, it's what you pass over when you're flying into JFK, thin strip of land out there. It's kind of like where the city meets the suburbs or the suburbs meet the city or something like that. Very strange, isolated um, place. Um, I made a feature film called Hasta Nunca, Spanish language uh, improvised feature in Montevideo, Uruguay. And it's a place I just loved right so I went there and I kept going back and I cast the film there and worked with non-actors there but it starts with place and moves outward you know which sort of rather than saying I have a story and I want to find out where I can put it you know I, I sort of start with a place and let the story emanate from that place well that was my question it's like how'd you choose the place and how'd you choose subjects well, I started in Pittsburgh because I thought it was emblematic of, um, you know, of a certain kind of um, change in labor from a, a Rust Belt city that is trying to reinvent itself as a clean technology hub in uh, a sort of unholy alliance between um, Carnegie Mellon, um, uh, the city of Pittsburgh and Uber, right? So this is weird academic, public, private thing. And by the way, um, uh, you know, um, automatic vehicle technology comes from the military, comes from the defense. So there's that 
shadow in it and the whole thing. So I thought, let me just go there for 10 days. And, um, you know, I interviewed, did some formal interviews with the sort of guru of automatic um, vehicles who ended up on the cutting room floor with some city officials and people on the street. So, you know, I try to be somewhat planned and somewhat spontaneous. You know, uh, there's an interview with the parking garage attendant in the film. Uh, by the way, his job, I mean, in the utopian uh, view of automatic vehicles, his job is gone, right? We don't park vehicles anymore. They mm -hmm. circulate 24 seven, which is not a terrible idea. You know, so much space is being used to, to house vehicles. Um, but it means his job is gone, right? So I just said, let's go to this parking garage over here and let's grab this guy and, um, you know, set up the camera and ask him a few questions. So, um, you know, the, the, the beginning of the film was really a mix between this sort of sit down interview like we're doing here and let's put ourselves somewhere where, you know, interesting people appear to be um, around and let's ask him very direct questions. Um, uh, I made a film in 2000. I just want to back up for a minute. Did you do the same thing with the cab driver? Yeah, yeah I just got a random. Cab. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for saving me from my digression. <laughs> so okay. um, you know, yeah, I just found, I went to, the, I, we got in a cab and, and um, we kept calling Ubers hoping to get an automatic one and that didn't work. Mm -hmm. So we ended up, cab driver is another job that will be gone, you know, based mm -hmm. on the Uber technology. So mm -hmm. I remember, um, we, uh, I think it was something like, hey, would you, you know, would you talk to us? And the, and the cab driver said, oh, you got to talk to Charles. Charles is a character. Um, so Charles called his boss and his boss said, oh, it's all right with me. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, got this cab and, and, you know, interviewing people in cars is great. You should try it, Chris. It's great because, because they're sort of in their, in the world and also in their private space in some weird way. I mean, I don't know about the technology, but, um, some documentarians swear by car interviews. Um, so this guy's driving, you know, he's not self-conscious because he's concentrating on, on driving. And uh, he was just, you know, he was great. I, I, I loved him. Um, it was a nice juxtaposition between him and the, uh, the, uh, the, the executive who was, uh, you know, praising uh, the automatic cars. And how yeah, yeah, work. yeah. One, one was, you know, way more um, sort of just fun and human and, and uh, real, you know. So. But you did that throughout the film. So I, you know, the UPS driver, versus the, the, the person who was uh, uh, driving a tanker, I think it was, you know? Uh -huh. Yeah, that was an immediate spontaneous interview. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. The UPS guy was, um, it was sort of six degrees of separation. I just, when I was out in California, I just sort of put feelers out. And you know, it's such work as you would, know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Everybody's got something to say about it, right? Everybody but the, but the land, but people who have inherited all their money, everybody's had a job. And, you know, if you just, if you make your pitch, my pitch, uh, very wide and very focused, tell us about your work, you know, uh, people can respond. Not everybody, but. Uh, is, that, is, that, is that the pitch? Yeah, I'm making a film about work. What, what intrigues you about it? What's, you know, what are your disappointments? What are your, um, how has it changed over time? Um, right. Yeah. What's the weirdest job you ever had? I said this yesterday. You ask, you sit around and people have had two or three glasses of wine and it's 11 o'clock at night if people ever get together again. <laughs> and, you know, people will talk for hours. They're, oh man, I had this weird job and I got fired and this thing happened. And, you know, um, so anyway. I, All right, I, wait, wait, wait. So, so what's the weirdest job you ever had besides documentarian? Well, I wrote an essay, a companion essay. I had to go way back and look at these, you know, all these things I've done over the years. Um, I, I actually phone solicited for this place called Olin Mills. And there are- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember yeah. them? And, and, Photographer, yeah. yeah. And they set up in a hotel room and then they, they cold call, they used to, out of the phone book. And then they say, you know, we're gonna come back to this hotel and we're gonna do, you prepay and then you come back and you get your family portrait or whatever mm -hmm. so this my boss was this woman vera that was her stage name i mean her phone name <laughs> doing it for like 30 years and you know this is a job i got out of the the classified section the beloit daily news in beloit wisconsin so we sat in this hotel room 
three 16 year olds and Vera. And she would literally, she literally bought us gin and tonics from the bar, <laughs> the hotel. We're 16, you know, and, um, and did this calling, you know, I remember once and she was, she, her voice purred. She'd been at this forever. She was sort, sort of like a female Willie Loman, you know, always on the road, you know, but anyway, one time I called this woman and she said, um, uh, oh, a family portrait. Oh, you know, my husband has terminal cancer. I said, look, I'm so sorry. I am just so sorry. Um, uh, you know, my best to you. I'm, you're in my thoughts. And I hung up and Vera turned to me and hurt. She was so mad. She said, Mark, that's when you go in and you say, all the better time to get a family portrait. Closing. Always be closing, die. man. Always be closing. What were you thinking? <laughs> what was I thinking? No more gin and tonics for me. <laughs> or, or, or maybe more gin and tonics for you. Thank you, Chris. Yes. Uh-huh. 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 Yeah. Uh, Elise, I'm just thinking about your... Elise has a, a, a lot of theater background, and I'm, I'm I, not a theater person, but I'm thinking... I, I really like your technique because, uh, you know, for all of my shows, you know, I, I do a little bit of preparation, but I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I feel like when you over-prepare, you wind up with a list of questions that you feel like you worked hard on, so you better ask them. And even if the interviews go a completely different direction, which they almost always do. And, and, and so at least I'm thinking that this, this feels like a bit of a theater thing too, as well, right? I mean, more of a theater technique in terms of improvisation which tends not to happen so much in film because, well, at least up until recently, because of, you know, you're talking about a lot of money and people and crews and, mm. you know, the kind of thing that you're talking about, Mark, is, is not, it sounds problematic from a professional point of view, but maybe I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, the value of being a sort of, um, you know, single entity. You know, again, I hired I hired some people I went to school with. I knew them really well um, out in uh, San Pedro, California, um, and they were hip to this idea of just driving around and looking. and And I didn't feel like I had to um, know what I was doing at every moment, <laughs> which is important, you know. But but most of what I do, I just go out by my by myself, you know. And that means I'm I'm not beholden to some large expenditure on crew or you know, um, it's almost a capitalist idea, you know, like I've invested in these questions, Chris, you were saying, you know, I've invested my labor into this, I better get something out of it, right? Whereas, uh -huh, um, uh -huh. if you're more improvisational, um, you can be, you know, light on your feet, I always say, you know, close to the ground, you can follow the ideas where they take you. Um, I made a film called Happy in 1999, which is a remake of um, The Pretty Month of May by Chris Marker, which itself is a remake of Chronicles of a Summer uh, by Jean Houche. Um, those films approached people on the street and asked them if they were happy. That's it. Are you happy? Um, and of course, Chris Marker's film uh, ends up to be about the... Um, uh, you know, it's the streets of Paris, and he uses the streets of Paris as a as a as a sort of site location. People are talking about the war in Indochina. How can I be happy when people are being killed in Indochina and things like that um, mm -hmm. before the French got out? Um, but anyway, happy. Um, I just walked up to people on the street in New York, different boroughs, different times of day, different um, locations, and said, "Excuse me, are you happy?" No introduction, no <laughs> pitch, nothing. You know. And you didn't get arrested? Didn't get arrested. Uh, one woman, you know, the thing about New York is people would either say um, things I can't say on air. To but me. Actually, no, you can say whatever. It's a podcast. Okay. And say, fuck you. That's, I, or, that's New York. Yeah. I know that's what they said. Or they'd talk to me. It was, there was no in between. Right, you know? right. I tried out in San Francisco once. I said, let me get <laughs> the global thing. And I loved San Francisco. I lived there for many years. But, um, San Francisco, I, I did like three interviews and I put the camera in someone's face and says, hey, are you happy? Excuse me, what right have you to invade my personal space? You know, there's this long litigious thing about personal space and stuff like that. Uh, whereas in New York, get, the, you know, get out of my face, fuck you. Or let's talk for like an hour, you know? Um, I could send you a link to that film. I had oh, yeah, great, I'd love to see that. That great sounds great. And um, I learned something too about spontaneity and um, 
improvisation. Um, and that is that um, I was cutting the film and it was fairly diverse from a um, socioeconomic standpoint, but it was not diverse from a gendered standpoint. Mm. And I was trying to figure out why this is mid post-production. But why is that? Well, that's because I don't feel comfortable being assertive with women, walking up to women with a camera in the way that I do with men. Right. You know, right. So the film is suffering for that. And nor should I feel assertive with women on the street. That's, you know what I mean? Like I have to figure out a way of, of, of getting some women in here, you know, and I don't know, I don't know consciously what I did, but I definitely went out and said, I gotta, I gotta figure out a way of, um, of, um, you know, getting more women's voices in there and maybe not being so, so assertive in there, you know, um, but it was interesting, you know, people would say, I could have said, I'm a professor. I could have said, this is my film. I could have said, this is something that interests me, but I wanted the question to go in right away. And a lot of people would answer it. They go, am I happy? Jesus, no one's ever asked me that, you know? Well, you know, I'm happy, you know, yeah, I'm happy in this way. Be, hey, what is this for? You know, you know like they, they'd muse around and they'd say, well, then what's your, you know, how are you tethered to, to society in asking this question? And I would just say, it's a film, film I'm making. Um, so anyway. Well, the, the two sisters were, I mean, I, I, <laughs> they were, they were in the film. Love them. I was just like, now where did they come from? Now they were, were you walking down the street and you see two sisters and they happen to be, you know, Longshoremen. Uh, union members, you know, descended from their father and the whole, it was just, it was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, they were great. And, um, you know, one was a former school teacher. Mm -hmm. I think since then, one has um, uh, retired. I think dock working and um, longshore men, which they call themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a little, bit, a little bit like the military in that people go in, they put in 20 years and then they go do something else with their life. Um, I discovered this, I made a film called Oil Towns about um, oil workers and it was similar, right? It was like people would go in for 20 years, make good money, do something else. Or they'd come from the military. You know, they put in 20 years in the military, 10 years working in North Dakota and mm -hmm. then keel over, I guess. But <laughs> it's a lot of work, you know? Yeah. Hard, um, hard, hard work. Hard, hard work. work. And, and it's a lot of separation from family in, in the, with the oil workers. They have these, what they call them man camps, Steinbeckian, you know, barracks, you know, so these men are sleeping next to each other there. They're working three weeks on, one week off, you know, sending the money home or, or not, you know, and. Um, Whoever's got the oil rules the world, basically is what it boils down to. Trying to make money to support our families and just get a better life. A lot of individuals come out with a lot of heart and drive to work and do a better job for America. While gas prices are rising, barrel of oil prices are rising, and no matter what, we need what's under the ground here. My fifth day out here, I got a job. Two weeks later, I got another job. So uh, that worked out real good. People think that, you know, you can go to Williston or go to North Dakota and make a bunch of money. But the thing with that comes high rent. My grandmother that lived over here in these, uh, in these trailers, they kept raising her rent just about every single month. She's 80 years old and, you know, they're just pushing people right out of their homes. It was like somebody flicked the light switch. One day it's extremely super busy, and like the next day, it's rather quiet. Almost back to like the days before the oil came. We lost about 30 rigs, so you know we lost a lot of people that we knew. And there's people selling furniture on the side of the road. In fact, uh, yesterday, I saw a guy had all of his furniture in the parking lot selling it at cheap prices so he could get out of town. How long you figure you'll be up here? I'm leaving today. Today. Anyway, how did I get off on this? Um, you asked a good question, Elise, and I butchered it. Other women, and how you encountered them? Pardon the me? sisters. The sisters. The sisters. How I encountered them? Yeah. Um, they. Um, Eric Sachs is a really great filmmaker, and he um, helped me shoot out there. He had lived in Pedro. Yet uh, they call it Pedro, even though it's um, spelled Pedro. Um, took me a long time to get that right. And then I met one woman in the course of making this film. She said, I call it Pedro. And I was like, 
Oh my God. <laughs> I've spent all this time training myself to say Pedro. Now it's Pedro for you. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, he knew them. It's a small, tight knit community. Um, he knew them. He called them up and he said, you know, can we do this interview? Um, so that was it, you know, two mm -hmm. weeks of separation. Or Network. And what are the one of the other things I was thinking, Mark, uh, about your technique is that, you know, when it's just you uh, and it sort of goes to the idea about interviewing people in cars, I think, although I think people are obviously a lot more comfortable, you know, being on camera now than they were, you know, certainly, uh, you know, a generation ago. Um, but I think if it's just you with a camera or maybe you and one other person, it's a lot less, um, invasive i think people might be more comfortable uh has that been your experience yeah you know it's an interesting trade-off on one hand they respect you less right I mean, i've shown <laughs> up i've shown up by myself or with one other person they're like this is it you know like i thought you know they had this vision of people running around getting coffee or whatever where's the know? light guy where's the where's the, where's the light person guy? exactly yeah so maybe they, maybe they, maybe it show it tips your hand or my hand as a kind of independent operator. Um, but I think ultimately there's less mediation, right? I think ultimately it's just it can be more conversational. I'm not pretending that the apparatus of filmmaking doesn't affect what they're going to say, doesn't make people self-conscious or whatever. But um, but I, I I I'm less nervous, <laughs> you know. And I think it's it's more direct. Look at us here, right? Think mm -hmm. about uh, what this would look like if it was less um, informal or more formal and there were technicians running around or something. This is very direct. I love it. Get you on a, get you on a panel. We were just talking about that. Those are the dreaded panel discussions, you know, it's just a just nightmare. But, um, and, and this is a variation on the question and I, we want to get into because actually Elise had some really interesting uh, uh afterthoughts on the whole uh, labor film question. Uh, but one of the things that, that I was wondering about um, as a filmmaker, and I've been dealing with this a lot uh, through some really, there's some really amazing editing tools now for both sound and video um, that can make even people like myself who are not professional editors, but can do amazing things. Uh, in terms of, you know, like taking out all the ums and the ahs, uh, for example. And so you have to deal with this, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, right? What do you leave in? What do you take out? What do you maybe move around? And, you know, I come from a journalism background, so I'm very nervous about doing that sort of thing, right? I mean, to me, I have a lot of commitment to what people actually say, even though people don't usually talk in really... Um, <clears throat> they don't talk as good as we write, let's say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So as a filmmaker, how do you, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, but also somebody who's making more artistic documentaries, what, what's your thought on, on, on dealing with that? Editing, moving things around, stuff like that. You know, I think you have to trust yourself on some level. Right. And um, you have to make it cohesive. And, you know, people don't, I certainly don't speak logically. Right. Uh, you know, I'm interjecting things, I'm digressing. And, um, you know, I had a couple people help me in editing. You know, it's great to have fresh eyes. And they would come in and they would say, well, hold it. You know, this person starts by saying this, but then says this. What if we just flip that around? It doesn't change what they're saying. It just makes, for rhetorical um, uh, unity or a rhetorical arc, you know, in the same way when you're right, if you're writing a, a print article, you you might re rearrange the quotes for somebody and actually make them sound better or something. You know? Right. So um, I just said, um, I'm conscious. We'll, we'll, we'll take it out later. We'll take that out later, right, exactly. I, I think it's interesting because I was thinking about this before and we were talking about the interview process, that that stream of consciousness is what happens when you don't have the prescribed, these are the three questions I'm going to ask you. <laughs> yeah. right? And in allowing people to go in their stream of consciousness, I think they are more creative. Yes. And it makes sense yes. because this is with, with Workers' Lives, Workers' Stories, when I started the, the labor theater troupe at the University of Michigan Labor Study Center, I found that when people wrote their stories, they were very, we went to the house, we were very happy, our whole family. But when I said, <laughs> tell me your story, 
and I recorded it, then I could go back and patch it together and say, this is what you said, but here's, here's a different order, right? Because this was really strong and you said this at the end and then you said this in the middle and I put, you know, and, and they went with it and they were able to memorize it because it came from them. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the idea of stream of consciousness or of, you know, letting people muse, you know. Yes. Um, yes. I showed this film in a class you know, at, the, at UC Berkeley uh, taught by a friend of mine, Jeffrey Scholar. He was at, asking me about the psychoanalytic properties of the interview, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Letting people talk, are uh -huh. you, what are you opening up for them? What is the, you know, what is that process like? And um, I don't have much to say about it, except that I think it's interesting. An interview is a, um, an opportunity to go somewhere someone hasn't gone before, psych psychologically. Um, I also think, you know, Michel Foucault talks about the difference between um, an interview and a conversation, right? An interview is based on a power imbalance. Chris, I want you to say this. Elise, I'm going to ask you a question and you're going to answer it. Uh, a conversation, which is more what we're having today, you know, it short circuits those power imbalances and it allows unexpected things to come to the fore. So um, I'm not yeah. advocating my power as a filmmaker, but I'm hoping that in certain spots, I achieved a conversation with those, with the subjects of the film, you know, where they were able to ask me and talk back and things like that. Um, well, I think, and there's also a key point that you made earlier too, that, that I, I want to appreciate in this, in this context is listening. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because the first oppression we learn is to be seen and not heard. And you're going to the average person on the, in the street doing their job and saying, I want to listen to what you have to say, mm -hmm. engaging in that relationship. So, so that comes across in the film. Thank you, Elise. There's no higher compliment. Listen, think about all the classes about communicating, about speaking well. <laughs> I teach at a Jesuit university. It's all about communicating your ideas clearly, yeah. thoughtfully. They call it eloquencia perfecta, you know, the perfect word, you know, whatever. Yeah. That's all great. Why the hell are we not talking about listening? <laughs> right? Why are we not listening? You know, communications. Let's get a whole academic department about empathy and listening and shutting my hell up. And uh, which I should do right now, and uh, getting people, you know, to to actively listen to each other. Well, you, you that's are. That's what we do in the film, right? I mean, yeah, we're listening, yeah. and that's that's a principal thing you're doing when you're watching the film, and you're taking it in. But it's also you got to you have to hear it. And and one of the reasons I knew Elise was gonna love this film, uh, besides the fact that it's just a great film, but the the title works songs work songs and I want you to talk about that and I want Elise to talk about that because it it was with that title I had a different idea about what it would be but it is absolutely the right title so I'd, I'd like to hear your, your your thoughts on that and I, I do want to get Elise to react to it as well. Sure. Um, came to the title pretty late um, I don't remember what working titles I had but they weren't as good um, and um, you know, I guess I had this wobbly song, which is literally a work song. Um, and I put it over the, um, the labor historian from uh, San Pedro, um, Art Morales, um, great, you know, great guy who wrote a book on the wobblies. Um, and I thought I had that in there. And then I thought, well, these interviews are sort of, um, they're like individual tracks on an album, you know, on, a, on an LP, um, which I used to buy. Um, or a CD, which I still buy, you know, um, and, you know, they're each unto themselves, they're each idiosyncratic, they're each um, maybe articulate as little snippets, and then they're cumulative, right? So this can be, these can be a collection of work songs. Some are two minutes, some are eight minutes, you know, um, some are extended, some are kind of light, some are deep, some are dark, you know, these are a collection of, of little entities. Um, so that's the way I thought about it. Elise, do you have any thoughts? Well, I was thinking in, in, the, in the, the classic sense of the Greek chorus, right? And a song wasn't necessarily set to music. A song would be a poem or a collection of words. And so when I, when I saw the title work song, that's what I thought of. So interesting. 
That's a great thought. I really, I love that. Um, I love us as the audience just listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's why, you know, somebody who, who loved, I mean, Studs Turkle can interview a telephone book and it would be great, but, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, but, but, you know, Studs was a great listener. That was, that was his secret, right? That he, he was not afraid to follow it. And, and so to me, that's, that you were really true to Studs Terkel's, uh, you know, that everybody has a story mm-hmm. and, and this idea. Um, and I, I, it makes sense to me when you talk about an album because, you know, it is, it is a, when I was thinking about the, the film, about these different pieces, um, you know, you, I had the feeling like you could have just, you could have tossed all those segments up and put them in a different way and it would be a different film. And I, I think it would still work. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure it's the best the way it is because, you know, you, it's, it's your vision. But, you know, just as with a certain, you know, some albums tell a story and they have a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, I don't know that they really do that anymore, do they? That's a good point. The Kings used to do that a lot. Sort of a- yeah. There was, what's it, there's a name for that. I don't remember what it is, but you know, you, sort of like an opera, you know? Yes. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, nobody does it anymore. <laughs> Queen, Queen did that too, actually. Yeah, Queen, right. Yeah, it definitely did. But I'm not, I'm not sure, probably because I don't really listen to uh, uh, CDs anymore. It's all individual, which is, which goes to your initial point about, you know, a- atomizing, you know, that, that, that is really something uh, that that's going on now with all of the personal, you know, we're watching movies individually. Um, and, and I really, I, I, a lot of people, I think we're all sort of getting to the end of our rope with this long pandemic, you know, shut in and we all are just hankering for that. You know, this is great. I think we've all gotten an appreciation for being able to see each other over zoom is certainly better than God forbid a conference call. Um, but at least, God forbid. <laughs> for right. real, God forbid. And uh, but at, at least, uh, and and Lisa and I go to a lot of movies together, and and Elise always talks about. Um, well, you should talk about it. The what what happens when we're physically in the same space? Mm-hmm. The breathing, the air, the same air. Which which no, of course yeah. we don't want to do that <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> But but you you have this point about how it's different when we're when we are sharing that space and the air and the vibrations. I don't know. You put it better than I do. Are you talking to me? Or are you talking to Mark? I'm talking to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you basically said it. I mean, that's it. And I was thinking about that earlier when we were talking about the experience of going in the theater. It did make me wonder, though, was it an extroverty thing or introverts? Do introverts feel the same way about the experience? I I, I don't know. Uh, but I do know that it is that it is that dynamic. I literally, is it is the sound waves, is the energy, it's it's breathing together. But what I want to talk about, what it made this all made me think about in stream of consciousness was the whole thing about the documentary versus the feature film. Ah, uh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, go lay, lay it on because I want to get Mark to. <laughs> she she was fun. She calls me up and leaves me this message after after the meeting yesterday. And just for folks that weren't there, this is uh, we were at the Global Labor Film Festival Organizers Network meeting yesterday that, that Mark came and talked to. And thank you for doing that. Uh, but I, I asked, I kind of went on my little mini rant about my frustration with these um, uh, these reenactments that folks are, are dumping into uh, documentaries that that confuse me. You know, I got you know, um, and 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 Mark, to your point. Uh, you know, and then also interspersing them with these uh, with these expert interviews, uh, which I, I'm very glad that you left those on the cutting room floor. I don't think they uh, I don't think they they really help. But but at least then called afterwards with a whole other take on it. Yeah, I it, it, I, I think here's here's what it's, where it started with in listening to our, this conversation is the voice of working class people is not heard. The authentic voice of working class people is not heard. And when I think about the film, Nine to Five, with Dolly and Jane and, and Lily, versus the documentary, Nine to Five, it's like, it's a totally different story. I mean, it's just like, and, and, and I, I know this from, from the experiences that when people hear their own stories told, when they hear their voices told, it's like, there's something that happens. Uh, and I, I, I don't wanna use the word empowerment, 
but there's something that happens in that relationship. And that's what happens in your film. Well, but, but the whole thing about the star thing is like, you're gonna get more star power if you thrown in Will Smith, okay? Or something, or had Tom Hanks narrated, right? As opposed to just the story as it is in the moment that it, in putting it together uh, to make a film. So feature versus documentary versus Hollywood. <laughs> well, I think there's a, um, I was gonna say this yesterday, but I, I um, it didn't come to me fast enough. Um, there is such a thing as a hybrid documentary fiction film, right? I think what you're talking about, Chris, reenactment, of course, Errol Morris does it right. um, all the time in the Thin Blue Line and other, other films like that. Um, but, um, you know, like, like in an essay film, there, there could be documentary um, elements and fictional elements that are sort of mixed together in a way which I find kind of interesting. But what you're talking about a little bit of Chris is fooling people, right? Sort of right. You know, is it real or is it Memorex kind of thing. Gotcha. If you're mm -hmm. old enough to remember that uh, commercial with Ella Fitzgerald, uh, you know, singing, they would have her, uh, remember this commercial? They oh had, yeah. You know, Ella singing and then they recorded it on Memorex cassette tape. Boy, I really sound old, don't I? And then they played <laughs> it back and we're supposed to figure out whether it's the real Ella or the recorded Ella. But anyway, um, Jean-Luc Godard said, all films are documentaries. Some are just documentaries of um, actors playing parts. <laughs> so, so, you know, in some ways you could look at, you could expand the definition of documentary um, or you could, you could mix it up a little bit. Um, but I think it's, I'm trying to think of examples of hybrid do documentary, but I think that there are, there are some films that don't purport to reenact right but sort of say here's a documentary section and here's a fiction section and we're going to mix them together and let the audience untangle them uh what you're talking about is something different chris it's sort of like a, a documentary with a little fictional embellishment or something you know well what i'm reacting to is a couple of things i mean the the overall context that, that I'm, I'm reacting to is that one of the big things going on in our country in the world right now is this you know is this whole question of what is authentic. And I think that's what Elise and I are both reacting to with your film. I mean, for all we know, we, you hired all these people, paid them, it's all scripted. I don't think so. You know, it really feels authentic. Like you just, you, you said yesterday, you know, one of those people was, you know, you, you were, you had a performance, you went across the street to the bar, the bartender was interesting, you interviewed the bartender, right? That's, that, that story, you know, that sounds like how you made the film, you know, like you just found yeah. these folks, right? Um, you know, but then you have people uh, like that right winger, James, somebody or other who goes and, you know, uses hidden cameras and then re-edits that stuff to make it look completely different than, than what it was because he has a political agenda, right? And, and so I think that that is a real, and so when you see things that purport to be documentaries that then uh, interweave, you know, let's do some reenactments here, let's do some, let's dress some people up in period costume you know, just because we have a whole bunch of money to do that and it doesn't actually do anything except, you know, sort of make it look sexier or flashier or whatever, you know, it, that does not feel authentic to me. And I think that that's, that's what um, at least I'm reacting to is, you know, I really like a film like yours where I feel, you know, and, and, and you didn't cut out your questions a lot of times. We can hear you off camera asking the questions, which is normally something I'm not a fan of, but because it's clearly a lot of times just you with your camera, like how else were you going to do that? Right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, that's a, I think that's a very central question for documentarians. I always tell my students, are you in it or are you not? Right? Are you a character? Are you Michael Moore? Or are you not Michael Moore? Are you pretending to be the voice of God as an omniscient off screen presence? Or are you a character? And if you are a character, you have to be a character, right? You have to create a character. So I actually consciously went back and put those questions back in. I cut them out. And then I think on the 10th or 11th or 12th edit, I said, look, I gotta, I gotta be in there. And if I'm in there, I have to have a presence. You know, I can't, I, I can't just be um, a placeholder. Um, and, um, and the presence I hope to create was of this sort of buckish interviewer you know hey can I ask you a couple questions mind if I talk to you for a minute 
you know, um, sort of underlying the spontaneity of, of the film and the kind of um, improvisation, you know, um, happenstance. There's no, there's no justice in documentary. You can, you can stand on a street corner for 48 hours and get nothing. And then you can go the next day and set up your camera and a beautiful human being walks by who will tell you her life story, right? And you have a whole film out of it, you know? And you just have to be open to those kind of risks, I think, in some ways. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, Chris, when you talk about authenticity and truth value, and I don't even want to use the term, um, you know, fake news because of where it came from, you know? <laughs> uh, but I guess I just did. But anyway, it's interesting. I have these Facebook friends from Wisconsin, some very conservative and some populist, some not really conservative, but kind of sort of all over the map. And I keep them because it's a, it's a view, it's a view into, out of my bubble, right? Uh, but they're always posting things that are, um, they're always, some of them are posting things that are curious to me. And I, and one posted something the other day, and I think it sort of speaks to your um, concerns about authenticity. And it was sort of a meme or something that he'd received and he was, he was, resharing and it said when I was little I was told not to believe everything I heard now I know not to believe anything I hear and I sort of thought well they then they've got us right if they they you know if they can spread all this disinformation to the point where people don't know what's up or what's down or what's real or what's not you know what is truth value? You know, what are facts, right, right. what is science? What is, you know, you know, can you look at the video of the, the in, you know, uh, insurrection riot at the Capitol and just believe your damn eyes? You, you know, uh, you should be able to, as the, as the prosecutors asked at the Derek uh, Chauvin trial, you know, look at the video of this horrible thing happening, believe your eyes, right? It really is real. It's not trumped up. It's not, you know, um, inauthentic it is it is a fact you know and i think the cloud and the smoke around facts has been um the smoke machine the fog machine has been ramped up so i get but I, no but i think i think you're you're you know it's exactly uh what what we're concerned about is is that it's a it's a real poison the well kind of a thing i mean they've, they've been doing it for years you know just trying to you know uh poison the well politically and i feel like that's happening now uh, with, you know, I mean, actually, the, you know, the Chauvin case is, is a perfect example. You know, the defense is trying to tell you that what you think you're seeing is not what you think you're seeing, right? Like, if you look at it from the right angle, his, his, his knee is actually not on his neck. And I'm like, you know, at that, that's the point at which, you know, like, uh, you've completely lost me now. You know, if you can convince me that, no, this, that I, you know, it, it does remind me of Trump saying, you know, you know don't, don't, don't believe what you see, <laughs> you know? But I do want to sort of wrap up with a with a with a question about about that about why why film right I mean there you I mean you're clearly you're you know an artist I'm sure that there are other arts that you could choose what what is so useful important valuable about film and when we talk about film we 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 mean film video I mean these kind of but but for the, for the purposes of this film. Um, you know, I really appreciate what, what Elise said earlier about, um, um, the, the, her experience of, of feeling like people were heard in this film. And I felt like, uh, video and audio together, um, um, allowed, allowed them to be full is all I can say on the screen. You know, I'm thinking about that gentleman in Bisbee, Arizona with the hat on, right? Who talks about um, passing on his um, uh, skills as a laborer to, um, uh, to his sons and things like that. Um, or the um, man in LA who, you know, immigrant, you know, worked his way up, owns his own car shop, et cetera. He's a full human being, right? Film allows him us to hear him and see him, see his uncomfortability, see his mannerisms, um, all those things. So, so I just really felt like, um, like I wanted to paint a full picture of people in place, right? Um, uh, they call it B-roll footage. Um, 
who is it? One of the documentarians says, none of my footage is B-roll. It's all A-roll. Uh, but uh, anyway, you know, um, uh, to me, film allows me to, to paint a, a, a full picture. And I, it's something I feel I can do on my own. You know, um, a lot of times, even when I was working with a crew, I hired a local crew in Pittsburgh, which is where I started the film, which is where I was most terrified because you never know whether anything is going to come out. I don't know what your experience is like as creators, but, you know, you're like, I never know what I'm doing, you know, and is this real or not, you know? Um, so I was terrified in Pittsburgh and I would work with a crew and, you know, you always have to have some measure of appearing to maybe know what you're doing a little bit if you're hiring someone, uh, but then they'd go home and I'd just take my camera out at night and, you know, set it up. And that's, that's where we are technologically these days, right? I mean, you were saying this earlier, Chris, um, you know, you can get a camera for $500 and you can get some editing software and you can, I mean, my students do it every day, you know, shoot, come up with an idea at nine o'clock, shoot it at 10 o'clock, edit it at 1230, class starts at 2.30, you know, I mean, it's fine. It's very immediate, you know, and um, interestingly enough, I think that we're, um, we're fortunate in that way, right? We're not tied to large, you know, institutions, but I think it leads, and I'll just return to my theme, to more um, loneliness too. Uh, when I first graduated from undergraduate, I moved out to San Francisco and I had to join an organization in order to rent equipment and edit on a right. 16 millimeter flatbed. And I needed that community. And I loved it. It was called Film Arts Foundation in the 80s in San Francisco. Now my students graduate, their parents give them a camera and a laptop, well, they should for graduation. And they're alone in their apartment, maybe. You know, you gotta go out and find that community. Um, so I'm not arguing that film should be more expensive or that this technology shouldn't make things easier for us. It does, but it also puts us in our little bubbles as well. No, I think that's absolutely right. That you don't have that community. And the other thing I was thinking, Mark, I think it's arguable. And I, I don't think, I'm, I think other people have made this argument, you know, Black Lives Matter would not be possible without the fact, you know, all of this um, film of, of these things happening, right? That have been happening for years and years and years. Uh, but that, you know, yeah, well, no, that didn't happen, right? I mean, and, and now, now we've got film, right? Um, and so it really has changed. And I think that goes to the sort of the point here, right? That, you know, you can, you can try and argue that what you're seeing is not what you think you're seeing, uh, but it's, it's pretty difficult. You know, we, we do believe what we see and, and you know, you see, you see this brutality I think that it's really made a huge, huge difference. And that's because, you know, capitalism put all of these cameras in people's hands. Um, so at least we're gonna really leave the last uh, question or comment to you, so. What's next, Mark? Uh, well, I do wanna say that the film's uh, virtual release will be on May Day uh, uh -huh. at Argo Pictures. And let's see, I'm not sure how to, Bad, bad self-promoter here. Um, the link is somewhere. We'll, 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 we'll put it in the, uh, in the show notes. We got you covered. Thank you very much. Um, I, by the way, just very quickly, um, I wrote an article I can share with you called Street Photography in the Age of the iPhone. And the premise of it is oh. Filmmaker Magazine. I'll send it to you. But the premise is that people are at once, that um, the mechanism for creating images is is ubiquitous more ubiquitous than it was but people are more paranoid about their images right as well you know it's sort of a double-edged sword you right. know and a lot of times i get asked what are you doing you know what what uh you know uh what is this for what are you doing and things like that i think it's because people everybody everybody's snapping more photos and they're more afraid about where they're going to end up and things like that um but at least you generously asked me what's next um I have a sabbatical coming up. I like to go to strange places and film and let the um, films or the ideas of the film emanate from those strange places. Uh, so I want to go way north in Scotland to the oil fields and, um, you know, Dundee and places like that. I have sabbatical coming up. And I just want to start with the location and then maybe consider the notion of Scottish independence. Um, in relation to oil, because um, um, 
I don't want to speak for all people who are pushing for Scottish independence, but some are pro-oil because that's where the money comes from sure. to, to create that, that thing. So it's an interesting mix of, you know, nationalism and, um, you know, sort of almost tribal pride or something and I guess anti-environmentalism in some ways. So uh, I don't know what the film will say yet. I don't know what I'll say as an outsider, but I'm intrigued by oil derricks as always by industrial and post-industrial landscapes. And I'll start there and, um, you know, interview people along the way and uh, see where it heads. Perfect. Well, uh, when you when you get back, let us know. We'll have you back on. We're going to want to get a debrief on that. Love to. Absolutely. It's really great. This really made my day. It's a great conversation with you both. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Take care. Bye-bye, Mark. Nice Thank you. Both. Take care.